The Holy Gospel according to St. John, the 20th chapter. To you, o Lord. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who is called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing, you may have life in his name. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. On Easter 2, we always hear the story of doubting Thomas, the man who refused to believe unless he could see. It is always the text appointed for the Sunday after Easter Sunday, making it one of the few texts that we read every single year in our cycle of readings. So, some people, somewhere, must have thought that this story was really important. It is probably because of the universal experience of doubt. Yes, we all deal with nagging concerns that what we all pin our hopes on may prove to be untrue. That's the bad news. Doubt is something that all of us have to work through. The good news is that I don't think that we would be able to think or reason at all if we did not also have the capacity to doubt. Doubting is part of the process of gaining surety, of growing in confidence of what you believe. And while doubt is hopefully for the believer only a periodic ailment that rarely troubles the believer, it is a normal part of being a fallen creature in a fallen world. The ability to doubt really, though, confirms our coronation as more than mere animals. 
After all, I'm pretty sure that cockroaches do not possess the ability to doubt, and none of us would want to trade places with them. At least I wouldn't. Still, doubt is not something to be celebrated. It does not, or it should not, earn you some kind of street cred, and it definitely does not make you wise, as some seem to think, as though doubt itself is some sign of advanced intelligence. Fighting doubt, though, can lead to wisdom. It depends on the nature of doubt. Not all doubts are the same. There's a big difference, for example, between uh, cynical or arrogant disbelief and, say, doubting with hope. I mean, I would like to think that uh, while Thomas is fairly poorly portrayed here, he, he really did want Jesus to have risen from the dead. Uh, so he was sort of doubting with the hope that that was the case. Uh, it means if you're doubting with hope that you are a sincere seeker for answers. It means that your doubt could be satisfied. If and when we do doubt, then that is the kind of doubter that we want to be. Anything less would probably fall into the category, these are biblical categories and names used, of being a mocker or a scoffer. But how do we overcome doubt? I mean, is there any one book to read, any one prayer to pray, any one discipline to perfect, any one piece of evidence or train of thought? Well, no, there isn't any one thing, of course, because if there were, we would all do it or have it, and then there would be no more doubt. So rather than teach techniques to incorporate into your daily life, what I think is important is really a mindset that we possess, an understanding of the, the world, the nature of the world, the, the nature of who we are, that doesn't try to overcome doubt, but simply makes it impossible from the outset. That is, instead of trying to reason up to God, we understand that it is impossible to reason at all without God. Rather than try to prove that God exists, we understand that nothing could exist without God. Rather than offer evidence for God, understand that even the best evidence is unnecessary for the believer. And that same best evidence would be rejected at the outset by the unbeliever. You see, at the end of the day, unbelief is not a matter of the mind. Very smart people believe in God and don't believe in God. And not so smart people believe in God and don't believe in God. Unbelief is less about what you know and more about your disposition towards God. In fact, it's all about your disposition towards God. Now, it is certainly true that very smart people will hide behind their intellect or their knowledge to justify their unbelief, right? They'll try to convince the world that they, they simply cannot believe because their, their rational faculty simply will not allow it. They say that, uh, that it is their, their discipline and their honesty that demands that they cannot make some leap of faith into the irrational or unknown. It would be a betrayal 
of all of the great values they stand for, the principles of believing only rational things, things only that can be proven. But the problem isn't the irrationality of Christian proposals. And the problem isn't a lack of evidence. The evidence is abundant. The problem is spiritual. It is the rebellion that refuses to give way to God's authority. It is man's desire to be the master of his or her own life. It is the lie that we tell ourselves that we can be fully autonomous and free. It is that desire for freedom from God that leads us to build masterpieces of denial and deflection. So when very articulate people with PhDs deny the goodness and provision of God, do not let it worry you. If it was just a competition of degrees, well, there are lots of Christians with PhDs, people who are very intelligent and believe all the same things believing Christians believe. While those advanced degrees, they might lead someone to be better spoken than we are, you can know that it isn't accumulated knowledge that has led them to their doubt. It is a spiritual denial of God. Acknowledging and understanding that reality puts us all on now much more familiar footing. For now we can talk about you know, moral and spiritual issues. This is how the Bible talks about unbelief, with language of repentance, etc. Not the complexity of the universe, or arguments for or against evolution, or all of the historical data to consider, though those are all topics worthy of study, I think. Christians should understand those arguments and be reading books about those arguments and be conversant in all of those sorts of arguments. But there are more important moves that we can make to not only confront the doubts of others, but our own doubts as well. And I would summarize it in five words. The impossibility of the contrary. The impossibility of the contrary. You see, what we want to argue for then is not a series of probabilistic cases that if all considered together, form an almost certain barrier to doubt, okay? We want to build a case that is impossible to be false. So rather than giving all of the reasons that it is almost certainly true that Jesus rose from the dead, we argue that it is not possible for anything else to be true. How do we do that? Well, we begin by asserting that the Bible is the revelation of God. The Bible either tells us, or the Bible rather tells us that it, it is either about God or it is not. And since it says that that is exactly what it is, it is the revelation of God to God's people, it is either a deceitful document, or it is the word of truth. Here are the things that the Bible says that are so important to these kinds of conversations. I'll just give you three. The first is that there is only one God, and it is the God of the Bible. 
pretty straightforward, right? Again, either the Bible is true or it is not. It, it is either a pack of lies or it is, the, it is truly the Word of God. That's what we're left with. And the very first point that I think God would want us to know is that there is only one God of this universe, and it is the God revealed in the Bible. Secondly, God has revealed himself through this unbroken chain of patriarchs and kings and prophets and, of course, his son, Jesus Christ. This is not a disparate collection of people, though, over these centuries of revelation. This is one consistent account across those centuries and all of those authors that tells the same story about the same God. Third, because the Bible begins with the miracle in the very first words of creation from nothing, all following miracles are of a lesser order, okay? Creation from nothing, that's the big miracle, okay? Everything else is sort of, you know, no big deal, in a sense. So if you believe that anything exists at all, now there are people who deny that, but if you happen to be one who believes that anything at all exists, then resurrection from the dead, for example, is certainly possible. And if the scriptures are inspired from God, and they are, then the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a certainty. A final consideration. The unbeliever, secure in his doubt, relies on the very immaterial realities that he denies exist. So he or she will declare until the cows come home that there is nothing beyond nature or material reality, that which can be known by the senses, okay? But that very belief is immaterial, just like the assumed laws of logic are immaterial. They exist, but no one can find them anywhere, and yet without the laws of logic, this very sermon, any conversation, would be simply impossible. Language depends on laws of logic. And yet, the unbeliever then cannot escape the reality of immateriality, no matter how hard they try. That is why what I believe is certain, because of the impossibility of the contrary, the impossibility of all the other options that have been set before me, that creation from nothing is possible without God. I don't believe that. That the revelation of God through his word is a fabrication. I don't believe that. That the apostles were all conspiring liars who knew that the resurrection was false, but went to their death proclaiming it anyway. I certainly don't believe that. Now, I realize that what I've just presented is a very broad uh, view of how to deal with doubt. If you'd like some follow-up information, some debates to listen to, some books to consider reading, uh, another conversation, just, just let me know. Th this is something that could easily be a kind of whole series of lectures to which I could provide links to you. Uh, so as always, much more could be said. And if this is a problem that you, you find yourself struggling with, then let me know. I'm, by all means, I'm, I'm happy to help in any way. But my absolute commitment is that God has specifically revealed himself to the world. And in this unbroken chain, this story of revelation 
It ends with eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. When I doubt, I ask myself, could all of those people, for all of those centuries, revealing the same God, all be wrong? Not only is my answer no, but more importantly, that the opposite cannot be true. Amen.